It's sort of an interesting passage. There are a couple of, actually, it's part of a longer passage of scripture. And I was trying to figure out, well, how, how can we take this big chunk and just drill down to what is, I think, the big idea here, the most important idea. And so, uh, for that reason, we just read a, a little portion of this section of the book of Acts, really stretching pretty much from chapter 20 all the way to uh, the middle of chapter 21. And in this particular section, Paul begins a journey to Jerusalem. Now, uh, we've got a map on the next slide, if you don't mind bumping it over, Yvonne. And I know uh, you probably can't pick out a lot of detail here. But Paul begins uh, with us in this passage in Troas, which is uh, the northwestern tip of Turkey, if you can make it out. I meant to bring the laser pointer up here, and I failed. So you guys are going to have to do your best. And then he travels all the way down to Caesarea, just above Jerusalem. I can reach that. So it's a long trip. And Paul stops in several places. Sometimes it's by just the nature of the method he's traveling. He's taking a ship. And he's taking a ship because it's faster. And he's taking a ship because he won't see everybody he'd like to see on the way. You ever, you know, when I go, when I come to the church in the morning or when I go home, if I walk, which I rarely do, even though it's definitely close enough. Uh, but if I walk, what ends up happening is there's always somebody out in their yard right? And usually there's several somebodies. And it takes me about 10 minutes. Here comes the laser pointer. So it's too little too late, of course. So look, that's where he started, right there in Troas. And he comes all the way down. There we go. Okay. But uh, I find that as I'm walking to the church, I always have to stop and talk to somebody. Usually it takes about 10 minutes to walk to the church, maybe even a little bit less, depending on how fast you're walking. The problem is when I walk to church, it takes 30 to 40 minutes because of all the people I have to stop and talk to on the way. Now, this is not a complaint. I'm not saying stop talking to me, guys. I'm trying to, but it is a reality that some days I'm like, I got to get to work at some point today. And so I'll drive, I'll ride my scooter, which nobody laughs at me when I do that. And then I get here and I'm ready to work. Okay. Uh, and I think that's part of what Paul is doing here. Paul loves all the people that he could stop and see. Remember, he's traveled all throughout Turkey here. He's been up to Antioch. He's been to Lystra and Iconium and Derby, And he's been along the, the shoreline. He spent two years in Ephesus. Did you catch it? said Paul took a ship and they stopped down here in Miletus specifically so he wouldn't be in Ephesus because he'd never get out of there. If he went to Ephesus. So he called the elders. He made them come to him in Miletus. He had to wait a day or two so they would come. But you know, they've all got to stay in like friends' houses and they're wearing out their welcome, so he knows they'll get out of town quickly. But he has this, he says, I, I need to get to Jerusalem. I have to get there. And there are a couple of reasons why he wants to do this. The scripture doesn't make all of them immediately clear, but there is one reason. In particular, in chapter 20, verse 22, Paul says, And now, compelled by the Holy Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. I, I have to get there. God has told me to go. Every morning I wake up and the Holy Spirit, it's like he's throwing rocks in my brain saying, Get a move on. You have to get to Jerusalem. Paul has to get to Jerusalem. 
Can you think of anyone else who had to get to Jerusalem in the New Testament? Yeah, so there are three, if you're, if you're here and you're thinking, I'm not really familiar with all this church stuff, there are three answers that if you just go through them, you'll probably get the right one. Jesus, God, Bible, okay? So why did Paul have to be in Jerusalem? You know, who else had to be in Jerusalem? Well, if I look in the Bible and read what God said, it was Jesus. At the end of the Gospels, at the end of each of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four books about Jesus' life, Jesus has to go to Jerusalem. And some, actually, uh, some of the Gospels are written in such a way they're organized geographically. And there's a moment in those Gospels where Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem. And it signals that he is done with what he's been doing and he is ready to move on to the next thing God has called him to. It's not an accident that... Luke is telling us about Paul in this way. Remember what we said, what Ray said earlier. Uh, he said, we are disciples. If we are Christians, we are disciples, which means we want to become like our master, who is Jesus. And what is Paul doing? He's doing the things that Jesus did. He sets his face toward Jerusalem. Why, beyond the Holy Spirit told him so, we're not entirely Sure, although we have some ideas and they're hints in the scripture. But the important thing is the Holy Spirit told Paul, go to Jerusalem. So he does. This is the right thing to do. When the Holy Spirit says go or do or be, we obey. The Holy Spirit is God. Communicates to us the words and the commands of God. And if there's one thing we know about God, it's that he's got the, the right. Not just the right, but he is good in telling us what to do and where to go. He has tied up his glory with our good in such a way that his instructions are always trustworthy, not just obeyed because, uh-oh, he's God and we better do it, sort of like with our parents, but also like with our parents, most of the time, I hope, when our parents tell us, I need you to do this, it's for a good reason that's good for us. So we've got this. But now something strange happens. Did you catch it in, verse tw or in chapter 21? So first, Paul, he stops in Tyre. I'm not going to talk about all the places he stopped. Luke doesn't talk about all the places he stopped. A lot of these are just they're itineraries, essentially. But he does mention that they landed in Tyre, where a ship was to unload its cargo. See, Paul didn't schedule this. The ship owner scheduled it. Paul, uh, according to the book of Acts, we don't know that he's ever been to Tyre before. He didn't plant the church in Tyre. We're sure of this because it says that he sought out the disciples there. They had to look around and ask for directions to the local church. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. And what did they do? Remember what, the Holy, what did the Holy Spirit tell Paul to do? This, this is interactive. What did the Holy Spirit tell Paul to do? Go to Jerusalem, right. I try and only ask easy questions, guys. Go to Jerusalem. Now, here in verse 4, through the Spirit, the Christians at Tyre urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. What? Is the Holy Spirit just playing games right now? Like, <laughs> you thought I was sending you to Jerusalem. Paul, you're such a sucker. You're so gullible. No, of course not. God doesn't do that. He doesn't act like that. And it's not just entire. 
Paul, they get back on the ship. They landed at Ptolemy, where he greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea. This is the end. Of, this is as far as we're going today. They reached Caesarea, just north of Jerusalem. And they stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. We've met Philip before, all the way back in Acts chapter 6. Philip is the, one of the seven. Remember, the church was neglecting the widows, especially the Greek widows. They weren't taking care of them the way they needed to. It wasn't because they didn't want to. They just didn't have the organization, so they choose, chose seven men who were godly and wise. And these seven guys get together, and they take care of the widows and a bunch of other things, and Philip is one of them. And Philip then goes to Samaria, and he shares the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Samaritans, and they believe. So Paul, this is, this is a significant guy that Paul goes to stay with. Not only is he a significant guy in the church who's uh, you know, had lots, he's done wonderful things and has influence, his four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So Paul's probably stopping there in part for some encouragement, right? Like, I want to hear from the daughters of Philip what God has to say to me and to the church. And while they're there, not only it's not enough that there are four daughters of Philip who prophesy, but a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, which would be kind of weird, like whoop, take it out. They didn't wear pants, remember, so that wasn't an issue, but he took it out. And he tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. What? Why would God do this? Why would the Holy Spirit tell Paul one thing and these other people another? Why would... What's happening? First, I just before we move on from Agabus, Agabus is acting like an Old Testament prophet, by the way. And they did these sorts of things. God would tell them, hey, you know, take your belt and you know, bury it, and that'll say this to my people, and you go act this out. Remember John the Baptist? He lived in the wilderness, and he ate locusts and honey, and his clothing was of camel hair. Do you think it was because John the Baptist was like, what's the most fashionable sorts of things I could do? Or because he was acting out something prophetic in that, going out to the wilderness where Israel had wandered, and the people came out to him. And John, So coming out to the wilderness was a way of saying, you are lost but God will find you. God will find you. The prophets acted out their prophecy very often, which is why Agabus does this. And imagine how impactful it would be. Agabus comes to Paul, whips his belt out. You know, you'd have to untie it and then take it out. And then can you, have you ever tried to tie yourself up? Can you think how long it would have taken him, like struggling to get all this stuff on? And he's communicating, we really mean this. Like, God really means this. This isn't an uncertain sort of thing. I'm going to go all the way to show you exactly what it is that God has to say. But what is it that God has to say? How can the Holy Spirit compel Paul to go to Jerusalem? And yet the people of Tyre urge him, in the Holy Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. And Agabus say, if you go to Jerusalem, this is what will happen to you. Well, I think there are a couple of things we need to pick out of this. The first is that sometimes God's message is difficult. 
That maybe that doesn't sound very profound this morning. But how often do we suspect that we're hearing the Holy Spirit speak, and yet what the Holy Spirit says sounds difficult, so we're wondering if it's really the Spirit speaking? You ever had that experience? I have that experience all the time, where you know the Holy Spirit's like, Ian, I, I want you, you know, you need to be about this in your life. You need to give this thing up in your life. I'm like, God, are you sure? Is this really the Holy Spirit speaking? Because that's just a convenient excuse, isn't it? No, I don't have to do it. It's not really the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't tell me something like that. I think, first of all, this reminds us that when we listen for God to speak, we need to be prepared for him to say what he is going to say, not what we wish he would say. We need to leave room for God to say things that are uncomfortable and true. As Christians, we are not people who've already got it all figured out. If there's anyone out there who does have it all figured out, uh, either you should be pastoring this church or you need to hear this this morning. You're people who don't have things all figured out. And part of what that means is God is going to tell us some hard truths in life. He has to. I mean, if you are a parent, you know this, right? There are things you sometimes have to tell your kids that you know will disappoint them. In my family right now, uh, you know, we've got a decent-sized extended family here, and everybody is sick. Like, all the kids are sick, and, you know, some of the adults are sick. And uh, one of the kids in the family was supposed to have a birthday party on Friday. It wasn't one of my kids. But uh, the whole family was sick, and so mom and dad had to say, no party on Friday. And I bet, well, I was the youngest of the cousins, I think, so he might have been like, what? I don't even know. Like, where are we? What's happening? But uh, at the same time, sometimes we have to let our kids down for their good, don't we? Sometimes we have to do that with our friends and say, hey, you know, I see what you want here, and it's just not going to happen. Like, I know you want me to be present at that thing, but I, I have these other responsibilities. You know, I see you're making some choices right now. And I love you. And that means I'm going to tell you the truth about those choices. Sometimes the Holy Spirit says to us the things we don't want to hear. And it's not just to us, because what's happening here is Paul says, I heard this from the Holy Spirit. And then other people in the Holy Spirit say, yeah, but there's lots of awful stuff that's going to happen to you in Jerusalem. So naturally, they don't want him to go. They love Paul. Don't go and suffer in Jerusalem. Do you catch this at the end of of our passage? It says, uh, when we heard this, when he heard Agabus, you know, tying himself up and saying, you're going to get tied up. You're going to suffer in Jerusalem. We and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? What I need from you right now is not people who will try and prevent me from ever experiencing pain as much as you're doing that because you love me. What I need right now are people who will encourage me because I know I'm going to experience pain. And the Holy Spirit does that. And that's the point here of all of these. 
the Holy Spirit's not disagreeing with himself. The Holy Spirit isn't saying on the one hand, go, and on the other hand, don't. What's happening is that in the Holy Spirit, Paul's friends are coming to understand what Paul has to go through. They're coming to understand he is going to go to jail. He's going to be beaten. He's going to spend years in imprisonment. And they're all worried and concerned for Paul and for the future of the church. And so they say, of course, what they would say, Paul, don't go. We don't want this for you and we don't want this for us. And Paul says, you don't understand. I am under the direction. That he, the word that Paul uses here when he says, it says now compelled by the spirit, it's a word for captivity. I am captive to the Holy Spirit. I have to go to Jerusalem. It's not up to me. What I need from you is not don't go. What I need from you is God's got you, Paul. Because that's part of why the Holy Spirit's telling Paul these unpleasant things, so that when they happen, Paul's ready. You know, Paul, this is the preacher's fallacy, right? Every Sunday. So as, as a preacher on not Sunday, I know that part of what we're doing in preaching is trying to build a body of knowledge, trying to grow people and grow myself over time through preaching. I know this six days a week. Sunday mornings when I get down, I'm like, we're going to see revival today. People are going to be like, hallelujah, and all this stuff out there, right? And I need people in my life. I need the Holy Spirit to remind me. No, normally I like to move people along little bits at a time. Little bits at a time. We are preparing to live our lives, not preparing uh, to have our lives lived for us. The same is true for Paul. Paul's being told, hey, when this comes, it's not outside of God's control. He's not surprised. He knew this was going to happen. You're going to Jerusalem, and a part of your heart hopes that the whole city is going to bow down and worship Jesus. And Paul, it's not going to happen got a different plan. God himself de desires the imprisonment of Paul for the testimony of Jesus Christ. You ever hear uh, us, maybe in church or somewhere else, you ever hear people talking about the martyrs or the martyrdom? Anyone heard that word martyr before? It's martyr, we use that word to talk about Christians who have died for their faith. And I suppose you could use it to talk uh, people in other faiths could use it to talk about you know, the people in their faith who've died for their faith as well. That was a lot of their faiths. So I hope you could follow that. Uh, but that word martyr actually comes from the Greek word martureo. martureo. It's a verb, and it means to give testimony or to give a witness. And that's what the early church thought was happening when people died for their faith. They were saying, this is who God is, and this is what he's like. Seems very strange, right? He's the guy who wants you to die for your faith. No, he is the God who died for you. The early Christians said we are being like Jesus when we die for him. Let me tell you a couple of stories. Let me tell you first about Ignatius. Ignatius, an early Christian living a couple hundred years after Jesus. And he wrote to the church in Rome. The, we've got his letter to the church in Rome. And I'm going to read an excerpt of it uh, from you. 
He is a prisoner. He's being taken to uh, Rome to be executed. He says, all the way from Syria to Rome, I am fighting wild beasts on land and sea by day and night, chained as I am to 10 leopards, that is a detachment of soldiers, right? It's a metaphor, who prove themselves the more malevolent for kindnesses shown them. I keep being nice and they keep kicking me. Yet in the school of this abuse, I am more and more trained in discipleship. Although I am not therefore justified, oh, may the beasts prepared for me be my joy. And I pray that they may be found to be ready for me. Now he's talking about real beasts because he knows as a Christian, he's going to go before some authority and they're going to say sacrifice to the emperor. And he'll say no. They'll say, does that mean you're a Christian? And he'll say yes. They'll say, great, we've got an arena all set up for you. And they're you know, lions and leopards and whatever else, they're ready to eat you alive. So he says, oh, may those beasts be prepared for me. Oh, may the, the beasts prepared for me, those beasts in the arena, may they be my joy. And I pray that they may be found to be ready for me. I will even coax them to make short work of me, not as has happened to some whom they were too timid to touch. Right? Sometimes people would go out into the arena ready to be eaten by the beasts and you know, whatever, the lions, whatever they were. And the lions would be like, nah, that's cool. Not hungry. And Ignatius, I'm going to go out and slap that thing until it eats me. <laughs> now, let me be clear. I'm not advocating absolute uh, emulation of Ignatius here. Do not go find the mountain lion or the coyote later today. And like, <laughs> you know, let's get this over with right now. Instead, I just want to show that Ignatius was so confident of who Jesus was and so excited to be like him in his death that he said, bring it on. Bring it on. Some have said that the early Christians may have been a little too anxious for martyrdom. That's possible. But I think part of the reason is that we're pretty fat and happy. I think this life is pretty good. I'm not anxious for the next one. There is perpetua. You know, the most popular book among Christians in the 2ndish, 3rdish century was the martyrdom of Perpetua, her diary that she wrote while waiting uh, to, to die. She was, uh, <clears throat> she was getting ready to be baptized. She was a young woman. She'd just given birth to a baby. And uh, uh, they were found out by the Roman government, and they were uh, in prison and while they were in prison, this happens. One day, while we were eating breakfast, we were suddenly hurried off for a hearing. We arrived at the forum, and straight away the story went about the neighborhood near the forum, and a huge crowd gathered. We walked up to the prisoner's dock. All the others, when questioned, admitted their guilt. And then when it came my turn, my father appeared with my son, her infant son, dragged me from the step and said, perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby." Hilarionis, the governor who had received his judicial powers as the successor of the late proconsul, Minicius Timianius, I totally know how to say that, said to me, have pity on your father's gray head, have pity on your infant son, offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperors. I will not, I retorted. Are you a Christian, said Hilarionis. And I said, yes, I am. And when my father persisted, well, 
we'll pass on then. Then Hilarionis passed sentence on all of us. We were condemned to the beasts, and we returned to prison in high spirits. We are becoming like Jesus. Now again, point of today's sermon is not go out, you know, tick off the local official till they want to execute you. Be the opposite where we live. But this sense of I am a true martureo, a true martyr, a true witness. This is what Jesus has done for you. A more modern example, Jim Elliott. You've probably heard his story before. You can actually, uh, there's a movie uh, that came out 10 or so years ago called The End of the Spear. And Jim Elliott and several friends went to a tribe in Ecuador in South America to try and teach them about Jesus. And it was a tribe that no outsider had ever been able to become a part of. And uh, they, most folks who went to visit them died. And they made some initial contact and things seemed to go well until one day they headed out and they never came back. And they were found later stabbed to death. They died trying to share Jesus with these people. And Jim Elliott uh, has a diary which is published. You can read it these days. And this is what he said. It foreshadows exactly what he was doing. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Is there anyone in here who's not going to die someday? I'm going to put my hand down. It's going to happen. Some of us, uh, it's years and years in the future. Others of us, it's a lot closer than we realize. You can't keep this life. It's not possible. No one's done it yet except Jesus. Although he gave it up for a new one. Ephesians 1 says that every heavenly blessing is kept for us. Every spiritual blessing is kept for us in heaven by Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? Keep for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So what do we make of this? We're coming back to Paul. One of the many good ministries of the Holy Spirit is to constrain us to go where we might not otherwise choose to go. And that's not a bad thing. There's joy at the end of the journey. It takes wisdom to, di to discern the purpose of God and all of that. It's not something that just uh, is always completely obvious to everyone. And Paul needed wisdom when he saw, you know, this is what you're going to suffer to know God's not warning me away, but he's preparing me to go. It took wisdom for Paul to tell his friends, don't break my heart, but go with me. Paul's friends would be fine. There is no judgment promise, no, no difficulty prophesied for them. Paul said, go with me and help. So it's important that we keep community with each other. Everywhere Paul goes, he's always talking. 
it says in all these travel things, like we, this whole crowd of people, they were, it's like a party bus going all the way from northwest Turkey down to Jerusalem. And the, everywhere they stop, they seek out the company of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And if, if you notice, like when they were in Tyre, it said, we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. They'd never met before. And they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem because they already care for him. And then when it's time to leave, it says, we left and continued on our way, all of them, all of them, including wives and children. They didn't stay in Sunday school, right? They came on out. They all went to the beach where the ship was, and they all knelt down, and they prayed together. Don't go on your own. We don't have to go on our own. I know this church is a place where people will go to the beach with you. I mean that figuratively, because of course they'd go to the beach with you, literally, but figuratively, they'll go even to the very deck of the ship. And then finally, I think we said it takes wisdom to do all of these things, to know what the Holy Spirit is saying. So it's also important that we weigh the advice of our friends by the Holy Spirit too. And of course, the biggest way we do that is we weigh the advice of our friends by Scripture to start with, because all Scripture is God-breathed, and that breathed part is a word that's often used to connect to the Holy Spirit. All Scripture comes to us by the Holy Spirit. So weigh the advice of our friends by Scripture. Weigh the advice of our friends by prayer. As we're doing the same with our own advice, aren't we? Because... My friends are often right more than I am. Uh, That's why I have more than one friend. We can weigh the multitude of counsel. So do it together. Go together. Think together. Stand up for what the Spirit says together. And then here's what I want to leave us with. Paul does eventually make it to Jerusalem. Believe it or not, we've been in Acts almost the whole year. We're going to finish the book of Acts uh, in the next two weeks. Got like seven chapters left, so this is going to be amazing. But, and I promise, we won't go any longer than we normally do. Uh, But with all of this, Paul is going to get to Jerusalem, and all this is going to happen exactly the way God tells about it. And then Paul is going to stand before kings and he's going to say, this is who Jesus is. And he's going to be guarded by Roman soldiers. He's going to say, this is who Jesus is. And he's going to go before Caesar, before Nero. And he's going to say, this is who Jesus is. And do you think there's a reason why Christianity went from being a few, like 12 guys upstairs in a room after Jesus died to within 300, a little more than 300 years maybe, the dominant faith in the Roman Empire. I think it might have anything to do with Paul's trip to Jerusalem. I don't know if Paul could have seen that. I'm sure he would have hoped it. But I don't know if Paul would have been able to tell, this is why God has taken me to Jerusalem. He just knew the God who took him there. He was trustworthy, and he is enough. You know, we wanted to respond to God's word this morning. We are disciples, which means we want to become like our master, uh, which uh, 
all of the Gospels, all the stories of Jesus' life point to the cross. Uh, and why is this significant? Well, Jesus did a lot of stuff on the cross. The first, you know, we, we talk about it a lot, especially at the communion table, he paid the price for our sin. But he did more than that. If you read the Gospels, the Gospels make it clear, and you can read this in the book of Colossians as well, that Jesus actually triumphed over the people who tried to have him killed, over the powers. He died, but he didn't stay dead, and he made them all look stupid. That's why they covered it up. But Jesus also showed people something on the cross too, didn't he? Remember, there are the seven last words of Jesus from the cross, and one of those phrases, there are actually seven last phrases, but one of those phrases is, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. So through the cross, Jesus showed us how much he loved the people around him. And that's something we can live out every single day, wherever we go. Our lives can be a testimony to God loves you. I want to repeat what I said, and then Dottie's going to play, but I want to repeat what I said as we came to communion. To be loved by God, it doesn't matter where you were born, to whom you were born, what you've achieved or failed to achieve. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic class, your sexuality, your gender, or your gender dysphoria. Just trying to pick a bunch of stuff. The bottom line is nothing matters other than Jesus' love. And he pours it out on everyone without regard to who or what or where.